0: Let's turn to our scripture. Our New Testament reading today is from Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38. We went ahead to the ship and set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul on board there, for he had made this arrangement, attending to go by land himself. When he met us in Assos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and on the following day, we arrived opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set, to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. He was eager to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent a message to Ephesus asking the elders of the church to meet him. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the entire time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from doing anything helpful, proclaiming the message to you and teaching you publicly and from house to house as I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus. And now, as, I, as a captive to the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. And now I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will ever see my face again. Therefore I declare to you this day that I am not responsible for the blood of any of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after I have gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some, even from your own group, will come distorting the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to warn everyone without tears, and now I commend to you. To, now I commend you to God and to the message of His grace, a message that is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing. You know for yourselves that I worked with my own hands to support myself and my companions. In all this, I have given you an example that by such work we must support the weak remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, for he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had finished speaking, he knelt down with them all and prayed. There was much weeping among them all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving especially because of what he had said, that they would not see him again. Then they brought him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Mark, chapter 10, verses 28 through 34. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. Peter began to say to him, "'Look, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the 12 aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, "'See, we are going up to Jerusalem, "'and the Son of Man will be handed over "'to the chief priests and the scribes, "'and they will condemn him to death. "'Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. "'They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise again. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
1: Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word of truth for your spirit of life. And we thank you that you promise to be here with us today where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are among us. And so we pray now that you would bless this time. And as we reflect on these scriptures and on this particular episode from the book of Acts, we pray that you would stir our hearts uh, to be alert, to be attentive to your presence, uh, to love you, to see our neighbors through eyes of love, That you give us to see our own lives through eyes of faith and hope that you give us and that you would make us all together more like jesus through this work that we do together this morning we ask all this through christ our lord amen so I had an interesting experience this morning as I was walking in. I walked from home today because I knew Market Street was probably going to be blocked, uh, and that is the dividing line. I live north of here, so I have to cross Market to get here. And I was, I was walking down 17th Street, walked past the Weston Hotel. I saw the entire San Diego Padres baseball team come out and get on a bus. And uh, you know, proximity to greatness is always kind of interesting. Um, But I felt this weird thing, because I'm a transplant. I've been in Philadelphia for almost 15 years now, but I'm a little bit older than 15, so I've spent time elsewhere, and so I'm not natively from this place. But I've been here long enough to kind of have a little bit of like Philly guts in me, and I had this sense of duty, (laughs) of responsibility, because it's like, here I am, and I'm the only Philadelphian who is seeing this happen. Who's going to heckle them if it's not me? And then I had this thought because I am like walking here to preach a sermon, and I'm like, would Jesus do that? And then I started thinking about what Jesus as a Philly sports fan would be like if God incarnated himself here and now. And then I was like, man, what does imitation of Jesus look like right now? And then the bus was gone. (laughs) And then I'm (laughs) I'm like, well, I think Jesus might go to church and try to get in sermon headspace anyway. So here's a little deep dive into my morning. It has literally nothing to do with the sermon. But I saw the Padres this morning, and I thought that was cool and that you should know about that. Um, so we're here in Acts. We've been, we've been in the book of Acts now for really all summer and fall, and we're, we're coming into the, the later part of it. Um, and, and so in this episode that we have, basically Paul has been traveling around. And we've already seen Paul be in the city of Ephesus, right? Um, he spent uh, a lot of time there, longer than he spent almost anywhere else about three years, probably, in total, and, um, and here he is passing back by, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops on an island off the coast of Ephesus, and he summons for the elders from that church to come and meet him because he knows that he's not going to ever go back, and he wants to have the opportunity to meet with the leaders of the church there to, to share with them a goodbye and some parting words. And what's remarkable about this episode, I think, is that this farewell speech for Paul is really a window into his heart. It really is. And I I think it's a window into his heart, his pastoral heart, but his heart as a disciple of Jesus, his heart as a servant of the Lord. And it's fascinating to me to see here, like, what it is that Paul chooses to narrate and to focus on. As he's gathering the leaders in this place one last time, as we read this as a staff um, this week, a couple of us were remarking about Paul's life and how he describes his own ministry. And it's even in these words as he's gathering the elders from Ephesus together, he's talking about all that he did. Right, like, like he just. I made tents among you. I never stopped praying. I was always laboring with you. I've been put in jail. It's like never did I waver from my calling. He starts going through his resume, essentially, as his pastor among them. And it's like exhausting to listen to it, right? And so we as a staff were like, man, how do, it's interesting to, to listen to Paul and to, to be inspired by him because on one hand, he's this remarkable servant whom Jesus himself called to be this one remember, if you remember from from Acts chapter 9, the one, I will show him what he'll have to suffer for my name's sake. This is what Jesus said as he actually showed up and is is enlisting this other guy, Ananias, in the work of of calling Paul, healing his blindness, and helping him get on this trajectory toward being the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was literally called by the risen Jesus himself verbally uh, and with this sort of out-of-body experience kind of extraordinary moment. And he's given this job of going and suffering and spreading the good news of Jesus in a very unique way and being an ambassador for Jesus in parts of the world that had never encountered anything like either Judaism in some places or certainly the gospel of Jesus. But here's Paul, this remarkably unique guy, and you read him and you're like, wow. In some ways, he's like this hero of the faith. And in other ways, you're like, I don't know if he has any work-life balance at all. You know, you read, you read him, and you're like, is this, like, do, do, we, do we get healthy patterns or boundaries from Paul at all? Because this guy is like a machine. And we started talking about um, the guilt of, like, what is it, you know, we, we almost feel guilty as you read Paul, because he's just such a kind of hero pastor. And you're like, man, I don't live up to that standard if that's what faithfulness looks like, that just feels like a bar that I can't hit or probably that you can't hit. And we started talking about what duty is, what expectation is, what our role as pastors or as even followers of Jesus in the world may be. But I found a really helpful commentary on this text from Willie James Jennings where he talks about hearing Paul's words and what he chooses to focus on and how Paul is choosing to focus on understanding his own pain through the story of Jesus. And he's choosing to focus on the love that he has for the people in that place, right? And how he desires their thriving. And he chooses to focus on what it would take for them to continue to take next steps of faith. And Jennings, as he gets into his commentary, he says, look, there are two dangers of confusion as we listen to Paul here. One is we as followers of Jesus, readers of the Bible, we might be prone to confuse the sacrifice. Because Paul is talking a lot about sacrifices that he himself has made. But Jennings says it's very important to recognize too, Paul does not confuse his own sacrifices with the great sacrifice. Jesus is the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world, right? Jesus is the savior. Jesus is God in person in our world, crucified and raised. And Paul is a messenger and a servant of this Jesus. And Paul is so captivated by the love of God displayed in Jesus. And he's so captivated by the movement of God in the spirit that he's just all in along for the ride. And his sacrifices aren't simply duty-bound sacrifices. This is what I have to do. They're what he chooses to do as his life is animated by the grace of God. And Paul gives himself, he yields, to the movement of the Spirit so completely that he's willing to go wherever the Spirit will take him which looks like going to the kinds of places Jesus himself would go. Places of pain, places of need, places where people are marginalized, places where there is danger lurking. And so Paul maintains the integrity of his ministry first, by not confusing his sacrifices with the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the savior of the world. And secondly, Jennings says in his commentary, another confusion we may be prone to make is a confusion of the invitation with an injunction. Confusing invitation with injunction. You see, this isn't some duty towards some sort of like militaristic, self-sacrificial faith that we see embodied in Paul, Paul has responded to the invitation to get involved with God. And this is what it looks like as it plays out in his life. We can't coerce or force anyone to sacrifice in the way of Jesus. And the church has been and continues to be guilty of all kinds of ways of trying to do that. But it's important that we see Paul is willingly sacrificing things in his own life because he's so filled with the Spirit and so animated by God's love that he's just choosing to go along for the ride. And as we do that, we may do that in greater or lesser degrees, and as we do that, even as we do that in greater degrees, it may look similar or it may look different to the kinds of things we see displayed in Paul's life, right? There's this sense as I read Paul, that he lives with a kind of singular attention and aim in life. I mentioned we were studying this passage as a staff and we were talking about exhaustion and we were talking about boundaries and we were talking about busyness and we were talking about time and energy and all the things. And I was reminded of a book written by Chuck DeGroat called Wholeheartedness where he's remembering an encounter that he had, I think it was with a Catholic priest, where they were talking about exhaustion and and this guy said to him, he's like, you know, the opposite of exhaustion isn't rest. The opposite of exhaustion is wholeheartedness. When all of the things in your life, all the things that you do, all the things that you think about and spend your time and energy and resources on are in alignment, You live in a wholehearted way and not in this way of feeling like we're being pulled in a thousand different directions. It's the fragmentation that leads to such exhaustion. What I see in the Apostle Paul is he recounts his life lived among the Ephesians and as he's calling them together for this one last parting shot where he gets to tell them what's important and he recounts his life among them. I'm struck by this tone Of wholeheartedness that I hear in him. That all the things that he's been doing, all the things that he's been saying, all the sacrifices that he's made, they all line up. They're all cut from the same cloth. They're all aimed at the same goal. He's been really just aimed singularly and holistically at Jesus and the world that Jesus has promised and is bringing. And he's given himself vocationally to this wholehearted pursuit of God's kingdom. And Paul says in verse 24, I do not count my life of any value to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. Paul lives in a dangerous world and he knows it. Paul lives in a world in which both empire and diaspora mark the world and shape it that he lives in. Empire, the world of Rome that's marked by power and its pursuits and control, right? Diaspora, the Jewish world from which he comes, where the Jewish people scattered through Rome are living a marginalized life together and from a place of fearful self-protection are drawing firm boundary lines to try to keep a sense of self when it's always being threatened by the empire. And so empire and its power plays, diaspora and its fear dynamics, these are the engines that are making the world run that Paul is living in. And here he comes, and he's driven neither by power nor fear, but by the spirit. And he's coming embodying a way of life that is neither empire power life nor fear-based self-protection. He's coming as an ambassador of the risen messiah, one who's actually gone all the way into the belly of death and experienced its worst and then risen from it, which utterly neutralizes the empire's biggest tool, the threat of death. He's also gone through the belly of death as the Messiah of Israel, and he's risen from the grave, and he has burst into the world as this one who is now able to embrace both Jewish and non-Jewish people, and as God in person in our own world has made one new humanity where there were previously a bunch of divided ones. And so not from a place of fear and self-protection, but from a place of absolute freedom and love. Jesus embraces the other and enlists people in his family to do the same. And Paul has been taking up that work, and he's been planting these little communities all over the known world at that time, telling them that your job as this new spiritual family is to practice this costly, otherworldly unity that doesn't play by the rules of either empire or diaspora. It doesn't play by the rules of either status or fear but it plays by the rules of love and freedom in the spirit. God's grace that Paul has come to speak of, for Paul, the grace is the gift. It is the spirit that what Jesus has achieved through his death and resurrection is the right to ascend to the heavenly throne and baptize the world with the very spirit of God himself. And usher in this new age where God is making one humanity in Christ and in the spirit. God has made one big us out of what used to be a bunch of thems. And he's called us into this beautiful work of practicing that together, of embracing one another across difference, of going together toward Jesus from wherever we are on this common journey of coming fully alive together. And as Paul is looking at the Ephesian church, he recognizes that the beautiful, compelling, authentic community that they have in that place is fragile. It's fragile. It's always vulnerable because the temptation of power is very real and the temptation of fear is very real. And there are people among them who are going to want to try to get the church to get not on Paul's course, as he has been talking about, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, but they're going to want the church to play by one of the other playbooks that they prefer, one of the other playbooks that actually looks like it makes more sense, feels more plausible, more realistic. Might be the power playbook, right? The playbook of empire where the community becomes a way for some people to ascend to power over others or to control things. Or it might be the fear playbook. We're going to keep ourselves safe by keeping the wrong kind of people out. These are the temptations that Paul sees lurking. These are the things that threaten the beautiful community that God has planted in Ephesus. And Paul wants the leaders to know as he leaves them, God is now entrusting you with the responsibility to be discerning. God is trusting you with the responsibility to love what God loves and to seek what God seeks and to embody together the kind of common life that Jesus came to establish in the world, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he describes the threats in terms of wolves that lurk. This is an old, old, old Hebraic image from the Old Testament scriptures. If you think back to the prophet Ezekiel who described how there there were some religious leaders who were like wolves among the flock who are always there threatening to devour God's people and Paul invokes that kind of image to stir the imaginations of these Ephesian elders to know the kind of vulnerability that they live with, the kind of fragility that threatens the church, but what Paul tells them is that it is now their job to be the shepherds of that flock. If you remember Jesus, when he described his own ministry, what did he say? He said, I am the good shepherd, right? And he talked about that in contrast with bad shepherds, like the kind that are wolves that will come to devour the flock, and he talked about that in contrast with the hired hands. The kind who, when they see the wolf coming, they run, because they were just in it for the money, and now that job no longer really passes the cost-benefit analysis, right? It's not worth it. But Jesus, in contrast to both of these kinds of leaders, says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. And he talks about how he's, he's a leader who feeds and loves and knows and protects his flock. And then Paul, as he's writing to the Ephesian church in his letter to them, talks about how the same Jesus ascended up to heaven and gave gifts to the church, and he gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul's casting a vision for this humanity in Christ to be this one body of Jesus in the world, the hands, the feet, the mouthpiece of Jesus, united organically to our risen head, who is Jesus, living together wholeheartedly, all in, to seek the kind of community and world that Jesus has come to establish. And that's what Paul wants to give to these leaders of the church as he leaves them, and as he knows that he's never coming back. And so they hear this, they're all in this together, and then they weep because they love one another and this is goodbye. And this is one of the most beautiful things to me, just to see the love of Paul for this church. He's not just this like robot pastor guy who's just always running with a high motor. He loves these people. He was with them for years and he shepherded them well. And as he's leaving them now, what he wants desperately is for them to thrive in his absence. And so he's giving them what he believes they need to know. That this stuff is real. That God's grace is worth it. That Jesus' sacrifice is the one that heals all of our wounds and we get to join in him. That our experiences of suffering and pain are not evidence of God's absence or disinterest in us, but they are evidence, in fact, that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ and we are in the good company of the Son of God. And that the beautiful community knit together in the Spirit is both fragile and worth protecting. And so he says guard it, be alert, be active, be attentive. Stay aimed at the truth of Christ. Keep your lives centered on the story of Jesus. Keep doing the thing of practicing the costly unity across difference rather than getting siloed into the little groups, whether they be religious or ethnic or whatever, the easier unities that are actually more uniformity than the beautiful unity Jesus has come to establish. I think there's an invitation here for us as well, just as we imagine our own life as a church, as we imagine our own life in the world as followers of Jesus here in this place. I was kind of kidding before when I'm like, what if God incarnated his life as a 2022 Philadelphia sports fan, right? But it's like, that's actually the job that is ours to work out. What does Christ's likeness look like as us today and now? How do we practice together this unity that Jesus has come to establish in the earth? How do we receive and participate in the great gift that is God's grace and God's spirit? How do we give ourselves more and more wholeheartedly to God and God's endeavor in the world? Because he's up to something. He's making all things new, including you and me. He's making a world that thrives, and he's calling us to join him, to get involved in this incredible work of renewing the entire world. Relationally, vocationally, spiritually, God is calling us to get involved with God. And that's an incredible privilege for us. And it's costly. But as we already mentioned The opposite of exhaustion or fragmentation isn't just rest, it's wholeheartedness. And the invitation of Jesus, mimicked here in the invitation of Paul, is to surrender to his love and to give ourselves more and more completely to the one who holds our life, who sustains and comforts us, and who can actually do something about all the things that are wrong with the world both inside of us and outside of us god is here his spirit is here jesus is real and he's given us the calling and the opportunity to embody in our life together a compelling witness to the truth of it that's good for us that's good for the world and the same thing that the ephesians needed when paul was leaving them is what we need today as well to be aimed wholeheartedly at Jesus and his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Our God, we thank you that you, you lead with love, and we can love because you first loved us. We thank you for Paul and his incredible ministry. We, we thank you for these stories from the book of Acts that we get through Luke, and how they've been preserved for us and passed down as scripture. And we do pray that you would be speaking to us this morning and, and working deep into our hearts a real love for you and one another that is enduring and deep and willing to risk. We pray that you would give us the kind of faith that allows us to step forward into the world, not in self-preservation, but in the self-giving love that you live toward us with in Jesus. And we need your help for that. And so we pray for your grace. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for the power of your spirit to do a number on us and to make us new. Thank you for the great privilege that it is to be your family. And we pray that you would help us to be more and more like Jesus. Amen.